Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 20. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 20. The Ogre's Castle. Between six and nine we made ten miles, which was plenty for a horse carrying triple, man, woman, and armor. Then we stopped for a long nooning under some trees by a limpid brook. Right so came by and by a knight riding, and as he drew near he made dolorous moan, and by the words of it I perceived that he was cursing and swearing, yet nevertheless was I glad of his coming. For that I saw he bore a bulletin-board, whereon in letters all of shining gold was writ, Use Peterson's prophylactic toothbrush, all the go. I was glad of his coming, for even by this token I knew him for knight of mine. It was Sir Maddock de la Montaigne, a burly great fellow whose chief distinction was that he had come within an ace of sending Sir Lancelot down over his horse-tail once. He was never long in a stranger's presence without finding some pretext or other to let out that great fact. But there was another fact, of nearly the same size, which he never pushed upon anybody unasked, and yet never withheld when asked. That was, that the reason he didn't quite succeed was that he was interrupted and sent down over horse-tail himself. This innocent vast lubber did not see any particular difference between the two facts. I liked him, for he was earnest in his work, and very valuable. And he was so fine to look at, with his broad mailed shoulders, and the grand leonine set of his plumed head, and his big shield, with its quaint device of a gauntleted hand, clutching a prophylactic toothbrush, with motto, Try, no you don't. This was a tooth-wash that I was introducing. He was a weary, he said, and indeed he looked it, but he would not alight. He said he was after the stove-polish man, and with this he broke out cursing and swearing anew. The bulletin-boarder referred to was Sir Osseis of Surluce, a brave knight, and of considerable celebrity, on account of his having tried conclusions in a tournament once with no less a mogul than Sir Gaheris himself, although not successfully. He was of a light and laughing disposition, and to him nothing in this world was serious. It was for this reason that I had chosen him to work up a stove-polish sentiment. There were no stoves yet, and so there could be nothing serious about stove-polish. All that the agent needed to do was to deftly and by degrees prepare the public for the great change, and have them established in predilections toward neatness against the time when the stove should appear upon the stage. Sir Maddock was very bitter, and break out anew with cursings. He said he had cursed his soul to rags, and yet he would not get down from his horse, neither would he take any rest, or listen to any comfort, until he should have found Sir Osseis and settled this account. It appeared, by what I could piece together of the unprofane fragments of his statement, 
that he had chanced upon Sir Osais at dawn of the morning, and been told that if he would make a short cut across the fields and swamps and broken hills and glades, he could head off a company of travellers who would be rare customers for prophylactics and tooth-wash. With characteristic zeal, Sir Maddock had plunged away at once upon this quest, and after three hours of awful cross-lot riding had overhauled his game, and, behold, it was the five patriarchs that had been released from the dungeons the evening before. Poor old creatures! It was all of twenty years since any one of them had known what it was to be equipped with any remaining snag or remnant of a tooth. "'Blank, blank, blank him!' said Sir Maddock. "'And I do not stove-polish him, and I may find him. Leave it to me. For never no knight that heights Osais, or aught else, may do me this disservice, and bide on live, and I may find him, the which I have thereunto sworn a great oath this day.' And with these words and others he lightly took his spear and gat him thence. In the middle of the afternoon we came upon one of those very patriarchs ourselves, in the edge of a poor village. He was basking in the love of relatives and friends whom he had not seen for fifty years, and about him and caressing him were also descendants of his own body, whom he had never seen at all till now. But to him these were all strangers. His memory was gone, his mind was stagnant. It seemed incredible that a man could outlast half a century shut up in a dark hole like a rat, but here were his old wife and some old comrades to testify to it. They could remember him as he was in the freshness and strength of his young manhood, when he kissed his child and delivered it to its mother's hand and went away into that long oblivion. The people at the castle could not tell within half a generation the length of time the man had been shut up there for his unrecorded and forgotten offense. But this old wife knew, and so did her old child, who stood there among her married sons and daughters, trying to realize a father who had been to her a name, a thought, a formless image, a tradition, all her life, and now was suddenly concreted into actual flesh and blood and set before her face. It was a curious situation. Yet it is not on that account that I have made room for it here, but on account of a thing which seemed to me still more curious to wit, that this dreadful matter brought from these downtrodden people no outburst of rage against these oppressors. They had been heritors and subjects of cruelty and outrage so long that nothing could have startled them but a kindness. Yes, here was a curious revelation indeed of the depth to which this people had been sunk in slavery. Their entire being was reduced to a monotonous dead level of patience, resignation, dumb, uncomplaining acceptance of whatever might befall them in this life. Their very imagination was dead. When you can say that of a man, he has struck bottom, I reckon. There is no lower deep for him. I rather wished I had gone some other road. This was not the sort of experience for a statesman to encounter who was planning out a peaceful revolution in his mind for it could not help bringing up the unget-aroundable fact that all gentle cant and philosophizing to the contrary notwithstanding, no people in the world ever did achieve their freedom by goody-goody talk and moral suasion, it being immutable law that all revolutions that will succeed must begin in blood, whatever may answer afterward. If history teaches anything, it teaches that. What this folk needed, then, was a reign of terror and a guillotine and I was the wrong man for them. Two days later, toward noon, Sandy began to show signs of excitement and feverish expectancy. 
she said we were approaching the ogre's castle i was surprised into an uncomfortable shock the object of our quest had gradually dropped out of my mind this sudden resurrection of it made it seem quite a real and startling thing for a moment and roused up in me a smart interest sandy's excitement increased every moment and so did mine for that sort of thing is catching my heart got to thumping you can't reason with your heart it has its own laws and thumps about things which the intellect scorns presently when sandy slid from the horse motioned me to stop and went creeping stealthily with her head bent nearly to her knees toward a row of bushes that bordered a declivity the thumpings grew stronger and quicker and they kept it up while she was gaining her ambush and getting her glimpse over the declivity and also while i was creeping to her side on my knees her eyes were burning now as she pointed with her finger and said in a panting whisper the castle the castle lo where it looms what a welcome disappointment i experienced i said castle it is nothing but a pigsty a pigsty with a wattled fence around it she looked surprised and distressed the animation faded out of her face and during many moments she was lost in thought and silent then it was not enchanted aforetime she said in amusing fashion as if to herself and how strange is this marvel and how awful that to the one perception it is enchanted and dight in a base and shameful aspect yet to the perception of the other it is not enchanted hath suffered no change but stands firm and stately still girt with its moat and waving its banners in the blue air from its towers and god shield us how it pricks the heart to see again these gracious captives and the sorrow deepened in their sweet faces we have tarried along and are to blame i saw my cue the castle was enchanted to me not to her it would be wasted time to try to argue her out of her delusion it couldn't be done i must just humor it so i said this is a common case the enchanting of a thing to one eye and leaving it in its proper form to another you have heard of it before sandy though you haven't happened to experience it but no harm is done in fact it is lucky the way it is if these ladies were hogs to everybody and to themselves it would be necessary to break the enchantment and that might be impossible if one failed to find out the particular process of the enchantment and hazardous too for in attempting a disenchantment without the true key you are liable to err and turn your hogs into dogs and the dogs into cats and the cats into rats and so on and then by reducing your materials to nothing finally or to an odorless gas which you can't follow which of course amounts to the same thing but here by good luck no one's eyes but mine are under the enchantment and so it is of no consequence to dissolve it these ladies remain ladies to you and to themselves and to everybody else and at the same time they will suffer in no way from my delusion for when i know that an ostensible hog is a lady that is enough for me i know how to treat her thanks oh sweet my lord thou talkest like an angel and i know that thou wilt deliver them for that thou art minded to great deeds and art as strong a knight of your hands and as brave to will and to do as any that is on live i will not leave a princess in the sty sandy are those three yonder that to my disordered eyes are starveling swineherds the ogres are they changed also it is most wonderful now i am fearful for how canst thou strike with sure aim when five of their nine cubits of stature are to three invisible ah go warily fair sir this is a mightier emprise than i wend 
you be easy sandy all i need to know is how much of an ogre is invisible then i know how to locate his vitals don't you be afraid i will make short work of this bunco steerer stay where you are i left sandy kneeling there corpse-faced but plucky and hopeful and rode down to the pigsty and struck up a trade with the swineherds i won their gratitude by buying out all the hogs at the lump sum of sixteen pennies which was rather above latest quotations i was just in time for the church the lord of the manor and the rest of the tax-gatherers would have been along next day and swept off pretty much all of the stock leaving the swineherds very short of hogs and sandy out of princesses but now the tax-people could be paid in cash and there would be a stake left besides one of the men had ten children and he said that last year when a priest came and of his ten pigs took the fattest one for tithes the wife burst out upon him and offered him a child and said thou beast without bowels of mercy why leave me my child yet rob me of the wherewithal to feed it how curious the same thing had happened in the wales of my day under this same old established church which was supposed by many to have changed its nature when it changed its disguise i sent the three men away and then opened the sty gate and beckoned sandy to come which she did and not leisurely but with the rush of a prairie fire and when i saw her fling herself upon those hogs with tears of joy running down her cheeks and strain them to her heart and kiss them and caress them and call them reverently by grand princely names i was ashamed of her ashamed of the human race we had to drive those hogs home ten miles and no ladies were ever more fickle-minded or contrary they would stay in no road no path they broke out through the brush on all sides and flowed away in all directions over rocks and hills and the roughest places they could find and they must not be struck or roughly accosted sandy could not bear to see them treated in ways unbecoming their rank the troublesomest old sow of the lot had to be called my lady and your highness like the rest it is annoying and difficult to scour around after hogs in armor there was one small countess with an iron ring in her snout and hardly any hair on her back that was the devil for perversity she gave me a race of an hour over all sorts of country and then we were right where we had started from having made not a rod of real progress i seized her at last by the tail and brought her along squealing when i overtook sandy she was horrified and said it was in the last degree indelicate to drag a countess by her train we got the hogs home just at dark most of them the princess nerovens de morganor was missing and two of her ladies in waiting namely miss angela bohun and the demoiselle elaine de courtmaines the former of these two being a young black sow with a white star in her forehead and the latter a brown one with thin legs and a slight limp in the forward shank on the starboard side a couple of the tryingest blisters to drive that i ever saw also among the missing were several mere baronesses and i wanted them to stay missing but no all that sausage meat had to be found so servants were sent out with torches to scour the woods and hills to that end of course the whole drove was housed in the house and great guns well i never saw anything like it nor ever heard anything like it and never smelt anything like it it was like an insurrection in a gasometer end of chapter twenty chapter twenty one this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. 
a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter twenty one the pilgrims when i did get to bed at last i was unspeakably tired the stretching out and the relaxing of the long tense muscles how luxurious how delicious but that was as far as i could get sleep was out of the question for the present the ripping and tearing and squealing of the nobility up and down the halls and corridors was pandemonium come again and kept me broad awake being awake my thoughts were busy of course and mainly they busied themselves with sandy's curious delusion here she was as sane a person as the kingdom could produce and yet from my point of view she was acting like a crazy woman my land the power of training of influence of education it can bring a body up to believe anything i had to put myself in sandy's place to realize that she was not a lunatic yes and put her in mine to demonstrate how easy it is to seem a lunatic to a person who has not been taught as you have been taught if i had told sandy i had seen a wagon uninfluenced by enchantment spin along fifty miles an hour had seen a man unequipped with magic powers get into a basket and soar out of sight among the clouds and had listened without any necromancer's help to the conversation of a person who was several hundred miles away sandy would not merely have supposed me to be crazy she would have thought she knew it everybody around her believed in enchantments nobody had any doubts to doubt that a castle could be turned into a sty and its occupants into hogs would have been the same as my doubting among connecticut people the actuality of the telephone and its wonders and in both cases would be absolute proof of a diseased mind an unsettled reason yes sandy was sane that must be admitted if i also would be sane to sandy i must keep my superstitions about unenchanted and unmiraculous locomotives balloons and telephones to myself also i believed that the world was not flat and hadn't pillars under it to support it nor a canopy over it to turn off a universe of water that occupied all space above but as i was the only person in the kingdom afflicted with such impious and criminal opinions i recognized that it would be good wisdom to keep quiet about this matter too if i did not wish to be suddenly shunned and forsaken by everybody as a madman the next morning sandy assembled the swine in the dining-room and gave them their breakfast waiting upon them personally and manifesting in every way the deep reverence which the natives of her island ancient and modern have always felt for rank let its outward casket and the mental and moral contents be what they may i could have eaten with the hogs if i had had birth approaching my lofty official rank but i hadn't and so accepted the unavoidable slight and made no complaint sandy and i had our breakfast at the second table the family were not at home i said how many are in the family sandy and where do they keep themselves family yes which family good my lord why this family your own family sooth to say i understand you not i i have no family no family why sandy isn't this your home now how indeed might that be i have no home well then uh, whose home is this ah would you well i would tell you and i knew myself come you don't even know these people then who invited us here not invited us we but came that is all 
why woman this is a most extraordinary performance the effrontery of it is beyond admiration we blandly march into a man's house and cram it full of the only really valuable nobility the sun has yet discovered in the earth and then it turns out that we don't even know the man's name how did you ever venture to take this extravagant liberty i supposed of course it was your home what will the man say what will he say forsooth what can he say but give thanks thanks for what her face was filled with a puzzled surprise verily thou troublest mine understanding with strange words do you dream that one of his estate is like to have the honor twice in his life to entertain company such as we have brought to grace his house withal well no when you come to that no it's it's an even bet that this is the first time he has had a treat like this then let him be thankful and manifest the same by grateful speech and due humility he were a dog else in the air and the ancestor of dogs to my mind the situation was uncomfortable it might become more so it might be a good idea to muster the hogs and move on so i said the day is wasting sandy it is time to get the nobility together and be moving wherefore fair sir and boss we want to take them to their home don't we la but list to him they be of all the regions of the earth each must hie to her own home when you we might do all these journeys in one so brief life as he hath appointed that created life and thereto death likewise with help of adam who by sin done through persuasion of his helpmeet she being wrought upon the betrayed by the beguilements of the great enemy of man that serpent hight satan aforetime consecrated and set apart unto that evil work by overmastering spite and envy begotten in his heart through fell ambitions that did blight and mildew a nature erst so white and pure when so it hove with the shining multitudes its brethren born in glade and shade of that fair heaven wherein all such as native be to that rich estate and great scott my lord well you know we haven't got time for this sort of thing don't you see we could distribute these people around the earth in less time than it is going to take you to explain that we can't we mustn't talk now we must act you want to be careful you mustn't let your mill get the start of you that way at a time like this to business now and sharp's the word who is to take the aristocracy home even their friends these will come for them from the far parts of the earth this was lightning from a clear sky for unexpectedness and the relief of it was like pardon to a prisoner she would remain to deliver the goods of course well then sandy as our enterprise is handsomely and successfully ended i will go home and report and if ever another one i also am ready i will go with thee this was recalling the pardon how how will you go with me why should you will i be traitor to my knight dost think that were dishonor i may not part from thee until in knightly encounter in the field some overmatching champion shall fairly win and fairly wear me i were to blame and i thought that that might ever hap elected for the long term i sighed to myself i may as well make the best of it so then i spoke up and said all right let us make a start while she was gone to cry her farewells over the pork i gave that whole peerage away to the servants and i asked them to take a duster and dust around a little where the nobilities had mainly lodged and promenaded but they considered that that would be hardly worth while and would moreover be a rather grave departure from custom 
and therefore likely to make talk. A departure from custom, that settled it. It was a nation capable of committing any crime but that. The servants said they would follow the fashion, a fashion grown sacred through immemorial observance. They would scatter fresh rushes in all the rooms and halls, and then the evidence of the aristocratic visitation would be no longer visible. It was a kind of satire on nature. It was the scientific method, the geologic method. It deposited the history of the family in a stratified record, and the antiquary could dig through it and tell by the remains of each period what changes of diet the family had introduced successively for a hundred years. The first thing we struck that day was a procession of pilgrims. It was not going our way, but we joined it, nevertheless, for it was hourly being borne in upon me now that if I would govern this country wisely, I must be posted in the details of its life, and not at second hand, but by personal observation and scrutiny. This company of pilgrims resembled Chaucer's in this, that it had in it a sample of about all the upper occupations and professions the country could show, and a corresponding variety of costume. There were young men and old men, young women and old women, lively folk and grave folk. They rode upon mules and horses, and there was not a side-saddle in the party, for this specialty was to remain unknown in England for nine hundred years yet. It was a pleasant, friendly, sociable herd, pious, happy, merry, and full of unconscious coarseness and innocent indecencies. What they regarded as the merry tale went the continual round and caused no more embarrassment than it would have caused in the best English society twelve centuries later. Practical jokes worthy of the English wits of the first quarter of the far-off nineteenth century were sprung here and there and yonder along the line, and compelled the delightedest applause. And sometimes, when a bright remark was made at one end of the procession, and started on its travels toward the other, you could note its progress all the way by the sparkling spray of laughter it threw off from its bows as it ploughed along, and also by the blushes of the mules in its wake. Sandy knew the goal and purpose of this pilgrimage, and she posted me. She said, "'They journey to the Valley of Holiness, for to be blessed of the godly hermits, and drink of the miraculous waters, and be cleansed from sin.' "'Where is this watering place?' "'It lieth a two-day journey hence, by the borders of the land that hight the Cuckoo Kingdom.' "'Tell me about it. Is it a celebrated place?' "'Oh, of truth, yes. There be none more so.' Of old time there lived there an abbot and his monks. Belike were none in the world more holy than these, for they gave themselves to study of pious books, and spoke not the one to the other, or indeed to any, and ate decayed herbs, and naught thereto, and slept hard, and prayed much, and washed never. Also they wore the same garment until it fell from their bodies through age and decay. Right so came they to be known of all the world by reason of these holy austerities, and visited by rich and poor, and reverenced. Proceed. But always there was lack of water there, whereas upon a time the holy abbot prayed, and for answer a great stream of clear water burst forth by miracle in a desert place. Now were the fickle monks tempted of the fiend and they wrought with their abbot unceasingly by beggings and beseechings that he would construct a bath. And when he was become a-weary, and might not resist more, he said, Have ye your will, then, and granted that they asked. Now mark thou what tis to forsake the ways of purity the which he loveth, 
and wanton with such as be worldly and an offence these monks did enter into the bath and come thence washed as white as snow and lo in that moment his sign appeared in miraculous rebuke for his insulted waters ceased to flow and utterly vanished away they fared mildly sandy considering how that kind of crime is regarded in this country belike but it was their first sin and they had been of perfect life for long and differing in naught from the angels prayers tears torturings of the flesh all was vain to beguile that water to flow again even processions even burnt offerings even votive candles to the virgin did fail every each of them and all in the land did marvel how odd to find that even this industry has its financial panics and at times sees its assignats and greenbacks languish to zero and everything come to a standstill go on sandy and so upon a time after year and day the good abbot made humble surrender and destroyed the bath and behold his anger was in that moment appeased and the waters gushed richly forth again and even unto this day they have not ceased to flow in that generous measure then i take it nobody has washed since he that would assay it could have his halter free yes and swiftly would he need it too the community has prospered since even from that very day the fame of the miracle went abroad into all lands from every land came monks to join they came even as the fishes come in shoals and the monastery added building to building and yet others to these and so spread wide its arms and took them in and nuns came also and more again and yet more and built over against the monastery on the yon side of the vale and added building to building until mighty was that nunnery and these were friendly unto those and they joined their loving labors together and together they built a fair and great foundling asylum midway of the valley between you spoke of some hermits sandy these have gathered there from the ends of the earth a hermit striveth best where there be multitudes of pilgrims ye shall not find no hermit of no sort wanting if any shall mention a hermit of a kind he thinketh new and not to be found but in some far strange land let him but scratch among the holes and caves and swamps that line that valley of holiness and whatsoe'er be his breed it skills not he shall find a sample of it there i closed up alongside of a burly fellow with a fat good-humoured face proposing to make myself agreeable and pick up some further crumbs of fact but i had hardly more than scraped acquaintance with him when he began eagerly and awkwardly to lead up in the immemorial way to that same old anecdote the one sir dinadan told me what time i got into trouble with sir sagamore and was challenged of him on account of it i excused myself and dropped to the rear of the procession sad at heart willing to go hence from this troubled life this veil of tears this brief day of broken rest of cloud and storm of weary struggle and monotonous defeat and yet shrinking from the change as remembering how long eternity is and how many have wended thither who know that anecdote early in the afternoon we overtook another procession of pilgrims but in this one was no merriment no jokes no laughter no playful ways nor any happy giddiness whether of youth or age yet both were here both age and youth gray old men and women strong men and women of middle age young husbands young wives 
little boys and girls, and three babies at the breast. Even the children were smileless. There was not a face among all these half a hundred people but was cast down, and bore that set expression of hopelessness which is bred of long and hard trials and old acquaintance with despair. They were slaves. Chains led from their fettered feet and their manacled hands to a sole-leather belt about their waists, and all except the children were also linked together in a file six feet apart, by a single chain which led from collar to collar all down the line. They were on foot, and had tramped three hundred miles in eighteen days, upon the cheapest odds and ends of food, and stingy rations of that. They had slept in these chains every night, bundled together like swine. They had upon their bodies some poor rags, but they could not be said to be closed. Their irons had chafed the skin from their ankles, and made sores which were ulcerated and wormy. Their naked feet were torn, and none walked without a limp. Originally there had been a hundred of these unfortunates, but about a half had been sold on the trip. The trader in charge of them rode a horse, and carried a whip, with a short handle and a long heavy lash divided into several knotted tails at the end. With this whip he cut the shoulders of any that tottered from weariness and pain, and straightened them up. He did not speak. The whip conveyed his desire without that. None of these poor creatures looked up as we rode along by. They showed no consciousness of our presence, and they made no sound but one. That was the dull and awful clank of their chains from end to end of the long file, as forty-three burdened feet rose and fell in unison. The file moved in a cloud of its own making. All these faces were gray with a coating of dust. One has seen the like of this coating upon furniture in unoccupied houses, and has written his idle thought in it with his finger. I was reminded of this when I noticed the faces of some of those women, young mothers carrying babes that were near to death and freedom, how a something in their hearts was written in the dust upon their faces, plain to see, and, Lord, how plain to read, for it was the track of tears. One of these young mothers was but a girl, and it hurt me to the heart to read that writing, and reflect that it was come up out of the breast of such a child, a breast that ought not to know trouble yet but only the gladness of the morning of life. And no doubt she reeled just then, giddy with fatigue, and down came the lash and flicked a flake of skin from her naked shoulder. It stung me as if I had been hit instead. The master halted the file and jumped from his horse. He stormed and swore at this girl, and said she had made annoyance enough with her laziness, and as this was the last chance he should have, he would settle the account now. She dropped on her knees, and put up her hands, and began to beg, and cry, and implore, in a passion of terror, but the master gave no attention. He snatched the child from her, and then made the men-slaves who were chained before and behind her throw her on the ground, and hold her there, and expose her body. And then he laid on with his lash like a madman till her back was flayed, she shrieking and struggling the while piteously. One of the men who was holding her turned away his face and for this humanity he was reviled and flogged. All our pilgrims looked on and commented on the expert way in which the whip was handled. They were too much hardened by lifelong everyday familiarity with slavery to notice that there was anything else in the exhibition that invited comment. This was what slavery could do, in the way of ossifying what one may call the superior lobe of human feeling, for these pilgrims were kind-hearted people and they would not have allowed that man to treat a horse like that. 
I wanted to stop the whole thing and set the slaves free, but that would not do. I must not interfere too much and get myself a name for riding over the country's laws and the citizens' rights roughshod. If I lived and prospered, I would be the death of slavery, and that I was resolved upon. But I would try to fix it, so that when I became its executioner, it should be by command of the nation. Just here was the wayside shop of a smith, and now arrived a landed proprietor who had bought this girl a few miles back, deliverable here where her irons could be taken off. They were removed, then there was a squabble between the gentleman and the dealer as to which should pay the blacksmith. The moment the girl was delivered from her irons she flung herself, all tears and frantic sobbings, into the arms of the slave who had turned away his face when she was whipped. He strained her to his breath, and smothered her face and the child's with kisses, and washed them with the rain of his tears. I suspected. I inquired. Yes, I was right. It was husband and wife. They had to be torn apart by force. The girl had to be dragged away, and she struggled and fought and shrieked like one gone mad till a turn of the road hid her from sight. And even after that we could still make out the fading plaint of those receding shrieks. And the husband and father, with his wife and child gone, never to be seen by him again in life? Well, the look of him one might not bear at all, and so I turned away. But I knew I should never get his picture out of my mind again, and there it is to this day, to wring my heart-strings whenever I think of it. We put up at the inn in a village just at nightfall, and when I rose next morning and looked abroad, I was where, where a knight came riding in the golden glory of the new day, and recognized him for knight of mine, Sir Osana Lacure Hardy. He was in the gentleman's furnishing line, and his missionarying specialty was plug hats. He was clothed all in steel, in the beautifulest armor of the time, up to where his helmet ought to have been. But he hadn't any helmet. He wore a shiny stove-pipe hat, and was ridiculous a spectacle as one might want to see. It was another of my superstitious schemes for extinguishing knighthood by making it grotesque and absurd. Sir Osana's saddle was hung about with leather hat-boxes, and every time he overcame a wandering knight, he swore him into my service and fitted him with a plug and made him wear it. I dressed and ran down to welcome Sir Osana and get his news. How is trade? I asked. Ye will note that I have but these four left. Yet were they sixteen when as I got me from Camelot. Why, you have certainly done nobly, Sir Osana. Where have you been foraging of late? I am but now come from the Valley of Holiness, please you, sir. I am pointed for that place myself. Is there anything stirring in the monkery, more than common? By the mass ye may not question it. Give him good feed, boy, and stint it not, and thou valuest thy crown. So get ye lightly to the stable, and do even as I bid. Sir, it is parlous news I bring, and uh, be these pilgrims? Then ye may not do better, good folk, than gather and hear the tale I have to tell, sith it concerneth you, forasmuch as ye go to find that ye will not find, and seek that ye will seek in vain, my life being hostage for my word, and my word and message being these, namely, that a hap has happened, whereof the like has not been seen no more but once this two hundred years which was the first and last time that that said misfortune shrake the holy valley in that form by commandment of the most high 
whereto by reasons just and causes thereunto contributing wherein the matter the miraculous font hath ceased to flow this shout burst from twenty pilgrim mouths at once ye say well good people i was verging to it even when ye spake has somebody been washing again nay it is suspected but none believe it it is thought to be some other sin but none wit what how are they feeling about the calamity none may describe it in words the fount is these nine days dry the prayers that did begin then and the lamentations in sackcloth and ashes and the holy processions none of these have ceased nor night nor day and so the monks and the nuns and the foundlings be all exhausted and do hang up prayers writ upon parchment sith that no strength is left in man to lift up voice and at last they sent for thee sir boss to try magic and enchantment and if you could not come then was the messenger to fetch merlin and he is there these three days now and saith he will fetch that water though he burst the globe and wreck its kingdoms to accomplish it and right bravely doth he work his magic and call upon his hellions to hie them hither and help but not a whiff of moisture hath he started yet even so much as might qualify as mist upon a copper mirror and ye count not the barrel of sweat he sweateth betwixt sun and sun over the dire labors of his task and if ye breakfast was ready as soon as it was over i showed to sir osana these words which i had written on the inside of his hat chemical department laboratory extension section g p x x p send two of first size two of number three and six of number four together with the proper complementary details and two of my trained assistants and i said now get you to camelot as fast as you can fly brave knight and show the writing to clarence and tell him to have these required matters in the valley of holiness with all possible dispatch i will well sir boss and he was off end of chapter twenty one This is chapter 22. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 22. The Holy Fountain. The pilgrims were human beings. Otherwise, they would have acted differently. They had come a long and difficult journey, and now when the journey was nearly finished, they learned that the main thing they had come for had ceased to exist. They didn't do as horses or cats or angleworms would probably have done, turn back and get at something profitable. No! Anxious as they had before been to see the miraculous fountain, they were as much as forty times as anxious now to see the place where it had used to be. There is no accounting for human beings. We made good time and a couple of hours before sunset we stood upon the high confines of the valley of holiness and our eyes swept it from end to end and noted its features that is its large features these were the three masses of buildings they were distant and isolated temporalities shrunken to toy constructions in the lonely waste of what seemed a desert and was such a scene is always mournful it is so impressively still and looked so steeped in death. But there was a sound here which interrupted the stillness only to add to its mournfulness. 
this was the faint far sound of tolling bells which floated fitfully to us on the passing breeze and so faintly so softly that we hardly knew whether we heard it with our ears or with our spirits we reached the monastery before dark and there the males were given lodging but the women were sent over to the nunnery the bells were close at hand now and their solemn booming smote upon the ear like a message of doom a superstitious despair possessed the heart of every monk and published itself in his ghastly face everywhere these black-robed soft-sandaled tallow-visaged spectres appeared flitted about and disappeared noiseless as the creatures of a troubled dream and as uncanny the old abbot's joy to see me was pathetic even to tears but he did the shedding himself he said delay not son but get to thy saving work and we bring not the water back again and soon we are ruined and the good work of two hundred years must end and see thou do it with enchantments that be holy for the church will not endure that work in her cause be done by devil's magic when i work father be sure there will be no devil's work connected with it i shall use no arts that come of the devil and no elements not created by the hand of god but is merlin working strictly on pious lines ah he said he would my son he said he would and took oath to make his promise good well in that case let him proceed but surely you will not sit idle by but help i will not answer to mix methods father neither would it be professional courtesy two of a trade must not underbid each other we might as well cut rates and be done with it it would arrive at that in the end merlin has the contract no other magician can touch it till he throws it up but i will take it from him it is a terrible emergency and the act is thereby justified and if it were not so who will give law to the church the church giveth law to all and what she wills to do that she may do hurt whom it may i will take it from him you shall begin upon the moment it may not be father no doubt as you say where power is supreme one can do as one likes and suffer no injury but we poor magicians are not so situated merlin is a very good magician in a small way and has quite a neat provincial reputation he is struggling along doing the best he can and it would not be etiquette for me to take his job until he himself abandons it the abbot's face lighted ah that is simple there are ways to persuade him to abandon it no no father it skills not as these people say if he were persuaded against his will he would load that well with a malicious enchantment which would balk me until i found out its secret it might take a month i could set up a little enchantment of mine which i call the telephone and he could not find out its secret in a hundred years yes you perceive he might block me for a month would you like to risk a month in a dry time like this a month the mere thought of it maketh me to shudder have it thy way my son but my heart is heavy with this disappointment leave me and let me wear my spirit with weariness and waiting even as i have done these ten long days counterfeiting thus the thing that is called rest the prone body making outward sign of repose where inwardly is none 
of course it would have been best all round for merlin to waive etiquette and quit and call it half a day since he would never be able to start that water for he was a true magician of the time which is to say the big miracles the ones that gave him his reputation always had the luck to be performed when nobody but merlin was present he couldn't start this well with all this crowd around to see a crowd was as bad for a magician's miracle in that day as it was for a spiritualist's miracle in mine there was sure to be some skeptic on hand to turn up the gas at the crucial moment and spoil everything but i did not want merlin to retire from the job until i was ready to take hold of it effectively myself and i could not do that until i got my things from camelot and that would take two or three days my presence gave the monks hope and cheered them up a good deal insomuch that they ate a square meal that night for the first time in ten days as soon as their stomachs had been properly reinforced with food their spirits began to rise fast when the mead began to go around they rose faster by the time everybody was half seas over the holy community was in good shape to make a night of it so we stayed by the board and put it through on that line matters got to be very jolly good old questionable stories were told that made the tears run down and cavernous mouths stand wide and the round bellies shake with laughter and questionable songs were bellowed out in a mighty chorus that drowned the boom of the tolling bells at last i ventured a story myself and vast was the success of it not right off of course for the native of those islands does not as a rule dissolve upon the early applications of a humorous thing but the fifth time i told it they began to crack in places the eighth time i told it they began to crumble at the twelfth repetition they fell apart in chunks and at the fifteenth they disintegrated and i got a broom and swept them up this language is figurative those islanders well they are slow pay at first in the matter of return for your investment of effort but in the end they make the pay of all other nations poor and small by contrast i was at the well next day betimes merlin was there enchanting away like a beaver but not raising the moisture he was not in a pleasant humor and every time i hinted that perhaps this contract was a shade too hefty for a novice he unlimbered his tongue and cursed like a bishop french bishop of the regency days i mean matters were about as i expected to find them the fountain was an ordinary well it had been dug in the ordinary way and stoned up in the ordinary way there was no miracle about it even the lie that had created its reputation was not miraculous i could have told it myself with one hand tied behind me the well was in a dark chamber which stood in the centre of a cut stone chapel whose walls were hung with pious pictures of a workmanship that would have made a chromo feel good pictures historically commemorative of curative miracles which had been achieved by the waters when nobody was looking that is nobody but angels they are always on deck when there is a miracle to the fore so as to get put in the picture perhaps angels are as fond of that as a fire company look at the old masters the well chamber was dimly lighted by lamps the water was drawn with a windlass and chain by monks and poured into troughs which delivered it into stone reservoirs outside in the chapel when there was water to draw i mean and none but monks could enter the well chamber i entered it for i had temporary authority to do so by courtesy of my professional brother and subordinate but he hadn't entered it himself he did everything by incantations 
He never worked his intellect. If he had stepped in there and used his eyes instead of his disordered mind, he could have cured the well by natural means, and then turned it into a miracle in the customary way. But no, he was an old numbskull, a magician who believed in his own magic, and no magician can thrive who is handicapped with a superstition like that. I had an idea that the well had sprung a leak, that some of the wall-stones near the bottom had fallen and exposed fissures that allowed the water to escape. I measured the chain, ninety-eight feet. Then I called in a couple of monks, locked the door, took a candle, and made them lower me in the bucket. When the chain was all paid out, the candle confirmed my suspicion. A considerable section of the wall was gone, exposing a good big fissure. I almost regretted that my theory about the well's trouble was correct, because I had another one that had a showy point or two about it for a miracle. I remembered that in America, many centuries later, when an oil well ceased to flow, they used to blast it out with a dynamite torpedo. If I should find this well dry and no explanation of it, I could astonish these people most nobly by having a person of no especial value drop a dynamite bomb into it. It was my idea to appoint Merlin. However, it was plain that there was no occasion for the bomb. One cannot have everything the way he would like it. A man has no business to be depressed by a disappointment, anyway. He ought to make up his mind to get even. That is what I did. I said to myself, I am in no hurry. I can wait. That bomb will come good yet. And it did, too. When I was above ground again, I turned out the monks and let down a fish-line. The well was a hundred and fifty feet deep, and there was forty-one feet of water in it. I called in a monk and asked, How deep is the well? That, sir, I wit not, having never been told. How does the water usually stand in it? Near to the top these two centuries, as the testimony goeth, brought down to us through our predecessors. It was true, as to recent times at least, for there was witness to it, and better witness than a monk. Only about twenty or thirty feet of the chain showed wear and use. The rest of it was unworn and rusty. What had happened when the well gave out that other time? Without doubt some practical person had come along and mended the leak, and then had come up and told the abbot he had discovered by divination that if the sinful bath were destroyed the well would flow again. The leak had befallen again now, and these children would have prayed and processioned and tolled their bells for a heavenly succor till they all dried up and blew away, and no innocent of them all would ever have thought to drop a fish-line into the well, or go down in it and find out what was really the matter. Old habit of mind is one of the toughest things to get away from in the world. It transmits itself like physical form and feature, and for a man in those days to have had an idea that his ancestors hadn't had would have brought him under suspicion of being illegitimate. I said to the monk, It is a difficult miracle to restore water in a dry well, but we will try, if my brother Merlin fails. Brother Merlin is a very passable artist, but only in the parlor-magic line, and he may not succeed, in fact, is not likely to succeed, but that should be nothing to his discredit. The man that can do this kind of miracle knows enough to keep hotel. Hotel? I mind not to have heard of hotel. It's what you call hostel. The man that can do this miracle can keep hostel. I can do this miracle. I shall do this miracle. Yet I do not try to conceal from you that it is a miracle to tax the occult powers to the last strain. None knoweth that truth better than the Brotherhood, indeed, for it is of record that aforetime it was parlous difficult, and took a year. 
nathless god send you good success and to that end will we pray as a matter of business it was a good idea to get the notion around that the thing was difficult many a small thing has been made large by the right kind of advertising that monk was filled up with the difficulty of this enterprise he would fill up the others in two days the solicitude would be booming on my way home at noon i met sandy she had been sampling the hermits i said i would like to do that myself this is wednesday is there a matinee a which please you sir matinee do they keep open afternoons who the hermits of course keep open yes uh, keep open isn't that plain enough do they knock off at noon knock off knock off yes knock off what is the matter with knock off i never saw such a dunderhead can't you understand anything at all in plain terms do they shut up shop draw the game bank the fires shut up shop draw there never mind let it go you make me tired you can't seem to understand the simplest thing i would i might please thee sir and it is to me dole and sorrow that i fail albeit sith i am but a simple damsel and taught of none being from the cradle unbaptized in those deep waters of learning that do anoint with of sovereignty him that partaketh of that most noble sacrament investing him with reverend state to the mental eye of the humble mortal who by bar and lack of that great consecration seeth in his own unlearned estate but a symbol of that other sort of lack and loss which men do publish to the pitying eye with sackcloth trappings whereon the ashes of grief do lie be powdered and be strewn and so when such shall in the darkness of his mind encounter these golden phrases of high mystery these shut-up shops and draw the game and bank the fires it is but by the grace of god that he burst not for envy of the mind that can beget and tongue that can deliver so great and mellow-sounding miracles of speech and if there do ensue confusion in that humbler mind and failure to divine the meanings of these wonders then if so be this miscomprehension is not vain but sooth and true wit ye well it is the very substance of worshipful dear homage and may not lightly be misprized nor had been and ye had noted this complexion of mood and mind and understood that that i would i could not and that i could not i might not nor yet nor might nor could nor might not nor could not might be by advantage turned to the desired would and so i pray you mercy of my fault and that ye will of your kindness and your charity forgive it good my master and most dear lord i couldn't make it all out that is the details but i got the general idea and enough of it too to be ashamed it was not fair to spring those nineteenth-century technicalities upon the untutored infant of the sixth and then rail at her because she couldn't get their drift and when she was making the honest best drive at it she could too and no fault of hers that she couldn't fetch the home plate and so i apologized then we meandered pleasantly away toward the hermit holes in sociable converse together and better friends than ever i was gradually coming to have a mysterious and shuddery reverence for this girl nowadays whenever she pulled out from the station and got her train fairly started on one of those horizonless transcontinental sentences of hers it was borne in upon me that i was standing in the awful presence of the mother of the german language 
I was so impressed with this that sometimes when she began to empty one of these sentences on me I unconsciously took the very attitude of reverence, and stood uncovered, and if words had been water I had been drowned sure. She had exactly the German way. Whatever was in her mind to be delivered, whether a mere remark or a sermon or a cyclopedia or the history of a war, she would get it into a single sentence or die. Whenever the literary German dives into a sentence, that is the last you are going to see of him till he emerges on the other side of his Atlantic with his verb in his mouth. We drifted from hermit to hermit all the afternoon. It was a most strange menagerie. The chief emulation among them seemed to be to see which could manage to be the uncleanest and most prosperous with vermin. Their manner and attitudes were the last expression of complacent self-righteousness. It was one anchorite's pride to lie naked in the mud and let the insects bite him and blister him unmolested. It was another's to lean against a rock all day long, conspicuous to the admiration of the throng of pilgrims, and pray. It was another's to go naked and crawl around on all fours. It was another's to drag about with him, year in and year out, eighty pounds of iron. It was another's to never lie down when he slept, but to stand among the thorn-bushes and snore when there were pilgrims around to look. A woman who had the white hair of age, and no other apparel, was black from crown to heel with forty-seven years of holy abstinence from water. Groups of gazing pilgrims stood around all and every of these strange objects, lost in reverent wonder, and envious of the fleckless sanctity which these pious austerities had won for them from an exacting heaven. By and by we went to see one of the supremely great ones. He was a mighty celebrity. His fame had penetrated all Christendom. The noble and the renowned journeyed from the remotest lands on the globe to pay him reverence. His stand was in the center of the widest part of the valley, and it took all that space to hold his crowds. His stand was a pillar sixty feet high, with a broad platform on top of it. He was now doing what he had been doing every day for twenty years up there, bowing his body ceaselessly and rapidly almost to his feet. It was his way of praying. I timed him with a stopwatch, and he made one thousand two hundred and forty-four revolutions in twenty-four minutes and forty-six seconds. It seemed a pity to have all this power going to waste. It was one of the most useful motions in mechanics, the pedal movement. So I made a note in my memorandum book, proposing some day to apply a system of elastic cords to him and run a sewing machine with it. I afterward carried out that scheme and got five years' good service out of him, in which time he turned out upward of eighteen thousand first-rate tow-linen shirts, which was ten a day. I worked him Sundays and all. He was going Sundays, the same as weekdays, and it was no use to waste the power. These shirts cost me nothing, but just the mere trifle for the materials. I furnished those myself. It would not have been right to make him do that. And they sold like smoke to pilgrims at a dollar and a half apiece, which was the price of fifty cows, or a blooded racehorse in Arthurdom. They were regarded as a perfect protection against sin, and advertised as such by my knights everywhere, with the paint-pot and stencil-plate, insomuch that there was not a cliff or boulder or a dead wall in England, but you could read on it, at a mile distance, by the only genuine St. Stylite, patronized by the nobility, patent applied for. There was more money in the business than one knew what to do with. As it extended, I brought out a line of goods suitable for kings 
and a knobby thing for duchesses and that sort, with ruffles down the forehatch, and the running-gear clued up with a feather-stitch to the leeward, and then hauled aft with a backstay, and triced up with a half-turn in the standing rigging forward of the weather-gaskets. Yes, it was a daisy. But about that time I noticed that the motive-power had taken to standing on one leg, and I found that there was something the matter with the other one. So I stocked the business and unloaded, taking Sir Bors de Ganis into camp financially along with certain of his friends, for the work stopped within a year, and the good saint got him to his rest. But he had earned it. I can say that for him. When I saw him that first time, however, his personal condition will not quite bear description here. You can read it in the Lives of the Saints. Note. All the details concerning the hermits in this chapter are from Lecky, but greatly modified. This book, not being a history but only a tale, the majority of the historian's frank details were too strong for reproduction in it. Editor. End of chapter 22「but looking pretty downhearted, for, of course, he had not started even a perspiration in that well yet. Finally I said, "'How does the thing promise by this time, partner?' "'Behold, I am even now busied with trial of the powerfulest enchantment known to the princes of the occult arts in the lands of the East, and it fail me, naught can avail. Peace, until I finish.' He raised a smoke this time that darkened all the region, and must have made matters uncomfortable for the hermits, for the wind was their way, and it rolled down over their dens in a dense and billowy fog. He poured out volumes of speech to match, and contorted his body and sawed the air with his hands in a most extraordinary way. At the end of twenty minutes he dropped down panting, and about exhausted. Now arrived the abbot and several hundred monks and nuns, and behind them a multitude of pilgrims and a couple of acres of foundlings, all drawn by the prodigious smoke, and all in a grand state of excitement. The abbot inquired anxiously for results. Merlin said, "'If any labor of mortal might break the spell that binds these waters, this which I have but just essayed had done it. It has failed.' whereby I do now know that that which I had feared is a truth established. The sign of this failure is that the most potent spirit known to the magicians of the East, and whose name none may utter and live, has laid his spell upon this well. The mortal does not breathe, nor ever will, who can penetrate the secret of that spell, and without that secret none can break it. The water will flow no more for ever, good father." I have done what man could. Suffer me to go." Of course this threw the abbot into a good deal of consternation. He turned to me with the signs of it in his face, and said, "'Ye have heard him. Is it true?' "'Part of it is.' "'Not all, then, not all? What part is true?' "'That that spirit with the Russian name has put his spell upon the well. God's wounds, then, are we ruined?' Possibly. 
but not certainly ye mean not certainly that is it wherefore ye also mean that when he saith none can break the spell yes when he says that he says what isn't necessarily true there are conditions under which an effort to break it may have some chance that is some small some trifling chance of success the conditions oh they are nothing difficult only these i want the well and the surroundings for the space of half a mile entirely to myself from sunset to-day until i remove the ban and nobody allowed to cross the ground but by my authority are these all yes and you have no fear to try oh none one may fail of course and one may also succeed one can try and i am ready to chance it i have my conditions these and all others ye may name i will issue commandment to that effect wait said merlin with an evil smile ye wit that he that would break this spell must know that spirit's name yes i know his name and wit you also that to know it skills not of itself but ye must likewise pronounce it ha <laughs> knew ye that yes i knew that too you had that knowledge art a fool are ye minded to utter that name and die utter it why certainly i would utter it if it was welsh ye are even a dead man then and i go to tell arthur that's all right take your gripstack and get along the thing for you to do is to go home and work the weather john w merlin it was a home shot and it made him wince for he was the worst weather failure in the kingdom whenever he ordered up the danger signals along the coast there was a week's dead calm sure and every time he prophesied fair weather it rained brickbats but i kept him in the weather bureau right along to undermine his reputation however that shot raised his bile and instead of starting home to report my death he said he would remain and enjoy it my two experts arrived in the evening and pretty well fagged for they had traveled double tides they had pack-mules along and had brought everything i needed tools pump lead pipe greek fire sheaves of big rockets roman candles colored fire sprays electric apparatus and a lot of sundries everything necessary for the stateliest kind of a miracle they got their supper and a nap and about midnight we sallied out through a solitude so wholly vacant and complete that it quite overpassed the required conditions we took possession of the well and its surroundings my boys were experts in all sorts of things from the stoning up of a well to the constructing of a mathematical instrument an hour before sunrise we had that leak mended in shipshape fashion and the water began to rise then we stowed our fireworks in the chapel locked up the place and went home to bed before the noon mass was over we were at the well again for there was a deal to do yet and i was determined to spring the miracle before midnight for business reasons for whereas a miracle worked for the church on a weekday is worth a good deal it is worth six times as much if you get it in on a sunday in nine hours the water had risen to its customary level that is to say it was within twenty-three feet of the top we put in a little iron pump one of the first turned out by my works near the capital we bored into a stone reservoir which stood against the outer wall of the well chamber and inserted a section of lead pipe that was long enough to reach the door of the chapel and project beyond the threshold where the gushing water would be visible to the two hundred and fifty acres of people 
I was intending should be present on the flat plain in front of this little holy hillock at the proper time. We knocked the head out of an empty hogshead, and hoisted this hogshead to the flat roof of the chapel, where we clamped it down fast, poured in gunpowder till it lay loosely an inch deep on the bottom, then we stood up rockets in the hogshead as thick as they would loosely stand, all the different breeds of rockets there are, and they made a portly and imposing sheaf, I can tell you. We grounded the wire of a pocket electrical battery in that powder, we placed a whole magazine of Greek fire on each corner of the roof, blue on one corner, green on another, red on another, and purple on the last, and grounded a wire in each. About two hundred yards off, in the flat, we built a pen of scantlings, about four feet high, and laid planks on it, and so made a platform. We covered it with swell tapestries borrowed for the occasion, and topped it off with the abbot's own throne. When you are going to do a miracle for an ignorant race, you want to get in every detail that will count. You want to make all the properties impressive to the public eye. You want to make matters comfortable for your head guest. Then you can turn yourself loose and play your effects for all they are worth. I know the value of these things, for I know human nature. You can't throw too much style into a miracle. It costs trouble, and work, and sometimes money, but it pays in the end. Well, we brought the wires to the ground at the chapel, and then brought them under the ground to the platform, and hid the batteries there. We put a rope fence a hundred feet square around the platform to keep off the common multitude, and that finished the work. My idea was, doors open at 10.30, performance to begin at 11.25 sharp. I wished I could charge admission, but of course that wouldn't answer. I instructed my boys to be in the chapel as early as ten, before anybody was around, and be ready to man the pumps at the proper time, and make the fur fly. Then we went home to supper. The news of the disaster to the well had traveled far by this time, and now for two or three days a steady avalanche of people had been pouring into the valley. The lower end of the valley was become one huge camp. We should have a good house, no question about that. Criers went the rounds early in the evening and announced the coming attempt, which put every pulse up to fever heat. They gave notice that the abbot and his official suite would move in state and occupy the platform at ten-thirty, up to which time all the region which was under my ban must be clear. The bells would then cease from tolling, and this sign should be permission to the multitudes to close in and take their places. I was at the platform, and all ready to do the honors, when the abbot's solemn procession hove in sight, which it did not do till it was nearly to the rope fence, because it was a starless black night and no torches permitted. With it came Merlin, and took a front seat on the platform. He was as good as his word for once. One could not see the multitudes banked together beyond the band, but they were there just the same. The moment the bells stopped, those banked masses broke and poured over the line like a vast black wave, and for as much as a half-hour it continued to flow, and then it solidified itself, and you could have walked upon a pavement of human heads to, well, miles. We had a solemn stage-wait now for about twenty minutes, a thing I had counted on for effect. It is always good to let your audience have a chance to work up its expectancy. At length, out of the silence, a noble Latin chant, men's voices, broke and swelled up and rolled away into the night, a majestic tide of melody. I had put that up, too, and it was one of the best effects I ever invented. 
when it was finished i stood up on the platform and extended my hands abroad for two minutes with my face uplifted that always produces a dead hush and then slowly pronounced this ghastly word with a kind of awfulness which caused hundreds to tremble and many women to faint constantinopolitanischer doodlesacks pfeifen machers gesellschaft just as i was moaning out the closing hunks of that word i touched off one of my electric connections and all that murky world of people stood revealed in a hideous blue glare it was immense that effect lots of people shrieked women curled up and quit in every direction foundlings collapsed by platoons the abbot and the monks crossed themselves nimbly and their lips fluttered with agitated prayers merlin held his grip but he was astonished clear down to his corns he had never seen anything to begin with that before now was the time to pile in the effects i lifted my hands and groaned out this word as it were in agony nihilisten dynamite theater zeigschens brenkens astendens versagungen and turned on the red fire you should have heard that atlantic of people moan and howl when that crimson hell joined the blue after sixty seconds i shouted transvaal truppen truppen transport trampel theater ibertraungens striden tragedy and lit up the green fire after waiting only forty seconds this time i spread my arms abroad and thundered out the devastating syllables of this word of words Mecca Musel, manen, massen, menchen, murder, moren, muter, mar, mor, and whirled on the purple glare there they were all going at once red blue green purple four furious volcanoes pouring vast clouds of radiant smoke aloft and spreading a blinding rainbowed noonday to the furthest confines of that valley in the distance one could see that fellow on the pillar standing rigid against the background of sky his seesaw stopped for the first time in twenty years i knew the boys were at the pump now and ready so i said to the abbot the time is come father i am about to pronounce the dread name and command the spell to dissolve you want to brace up and take hold of something then i shouted to the people behold in another minute the spell will be broken or no mortal can break it if it break all will know it for you will see the sacred water gush from the chapel door i stood a few moments to let the hearers have a chance to spread my announcement to those who couldn't hear and so convey it to the furthest ranks then i made a grand exhibition of extra posturing and gesturing and shouted lo i command the fell spirit that possesses the holy fountain to now disgorge into the skies all the infernal fires that still remain in him and straightway dissolve his spell and flee hence to the pit there to lie bound a thousand years by his own dread name i command it then i touched off the hogshead of rockets 
and a vast fountain of dazzling lances of fire vomited itself toward the zenith with a hissing rush and burst in mid-sky into a storm of flashing jewels one mighty groan of terror started up from the massed people then suddenly broke into a wild hosanna of joy for there fair and plain in the uncanny glare they saw the freed water leaping forth the old abbot could not speak a word for tears and the choking in his throat without utterance of any sort he folded me in his arms and mashed me it was more eloquent than speech and harder to get over too in a country where there were really no doctors that were worth a damaged nickel you should have seen those acres of people throw themselves down in that water and kiss it kiss it and pet it and fondle it and talk to it as if it were alive and welcome it back with the dear names they gave their darlings just as if it had been a friend who was long gone away and lost and was come home again yes it was pretty to see and made me think more of them than i had done before i sent merlin home on a shutter he had caved in and gone down like a landslide when i pronounced that fearful name and had never come to since he never had heard that name before neither had i but to him it was the right one any jumble would have been the right one he admitted afterward that the spirit's own mother could not have pronounced that name better than i did he never could understand how i survived it and i didn't tell him it is only young magicians that give away a secret like that merlin spent three months working enchantments to try to find out the deep trick of how to pronounce that name and outlive it but he didn't arrive when i started to the chapel the populace uncovered and fell back reverently to make a wide way for me as if i had been some kind of a superior being and i was i was aware of that i took along a night shift of monks and taught them the mystery of the pump and set them to work for it was plain that a good part of the people out there were going to sit up with the water all night consequently it was but right that they should have all they wanted of it to those monks that pump was a good deal of a miracle itself and they were full of wonder over it and of admiration too of the exceeding effectiveness of its performance it was a great night an immense night there was reputation in it i could hardly get to sleep for glorying over it end of chapter twenty three